Well, the time has come. The final discourse in Matthew. As we've walked through Matthew, we've encountered uh, four discourses, four teaching sections by Jesus. Started with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. What does kingdom righteousness look like? Uh, Then we saw in Matthew 10, uh, Jesus talking to his 12 and beyond the 12 to the discourse, the teaching section about mission in the world. And then it progressed to Matthew 13, where Jesus gave parables about the kingdom after his rejection, a decisive rejection by that wicked and adulterous generation. What's things going to look like about the kingdom from there on out? In Matthew 18, the fourth discourse, the last one we looked at, it was all about how to, now that Jesus is forming a temple built up of people, a new covenant community of disciples, how do they relate and interact with one another? And now we get to the final discourse in Matthew. The discourse that deals with the things of the end. What we have to do as we come to this, there's multiple things to say, but uh, one of the ideas that we need to have in the forefront of our mind as we enter this final discourse, we introduced last week. You remember what happened most recently. Jesus has been in the temple. He entered Jerusalem on a donkey, saying in no uncertain terms through his actions, I am the Messiah. And then we see the rejection of him by the leadership of Israel and by by Jerusalem as a whole. And then last week we saw him make a pronouncement, make a pronouncement in verse 38 of chapter 23. See, your house has left you desolate, referring to the temple And saying this, for I tell you, you will not see me, the Christ, again, until you say, Jerusalem, you must say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus walked out of the temple, out of the eastern gate, across the Kidron Valley. And as he's exiting, the disciples are like, wait, what do you mean? What about these beautiful buildings? And Jesus says, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And he crosses the Kidron Valley. He comes up on the Mount of Olives. He sits down. They would still be able to see very clearly the temple. We said last week that Jesus has in no uncertain terms saying the temple is going to be destroyed. God is leaving the temple because of the corruption of Israel. That generation that has rejected its Messiah, the leadership... And what we started with is this idea last week is living in light of redemptive history. In light of things happening like uh, the destruction of the temple. But that's going to continue on into this final discourse. Really what we saw last week sets the stage for what Jesus is going to teach his disciples in this final discourse. And yes, Jesus is going to talk about the end. He's going to talk about signs and such. But what Jesus will do for his disciples is he will say, it's not about dates. It's not about figuring those out. You can't anyway. It's about awareness and faithfulness right now. Because, yes, he's going to lay out the future, and he's going to give a picture and a portrait of the future in this discourse. But what Jesus is going to tell his disciples is, yes, here's what it's going to look like. And that might seem um, distant, 
But the key is, how do you live now? How do you be faithful now in light of the future? How do you live in light of where God is going in history? You know, as we think about Matthew 24 and 25, we're entering what we would call eschatology, stuff about the end times. People do a lot of weird things with the end times. We all understand that. Uh, people get sucked down the rabbit hole of date setting and schematics and charts and this and that and the other thing. But one of the things that you need to recognize, and you'll see it today, but you'll see it as we walk through the whole discourse that Jesus is giving his disciples, Jesus isn't so much interested in the dates or the timing or the signs. Yes, they're there, and he wants them to be aware of them. But Jesus is focused for the disciples on their perseverance and faithfulness right now in light of the end. And so as we enter this final discourse, you need to keep that in your mind as the primary application. Perseverance, faithfulness right now because of what's happening in the future. And so that leads us to the main idea of our text this morning as we enter this final teaching section by Jesus in the book of Matthew. And it's this, don't be deceived, don't be disturbed, persevere and preach the gospel of the kingdom to reach the end. That's what Jesus says to his disciples, and by extension, he says it to us today. Don't be deceived, don't be disturbed, persevere and preach the gospel of the kingdom to reach the end. And so as we look this morning, we start in verse 3. Verse 3 is crucial, critical to the rest of the whole discourse. What we do with verse 3 sets the trajectory for understanding what Jesus is going to do about the rest of his teaching. And so verse 3 is all about this, desiring to know about the when and the what of the end. Desiring to know about the when and the what of the end. Look at verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, so again, keep in your mind's eye that picture of this big old massive temple complex with the temple itself in the, the center of it. Jesus has just left this area. They can see it from the Mount of Olives. They're probably sitting down. They can look right down and see the temple, the main temple building and all of that. So they're sitting, and then the disciples come up to him privately, saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, you see, there, there are two questions there, aren't there? There's a when question, and there's a what question. There's a when question, and there's a what question. There's a when as far as timing, a temporal question. And then there's a what question as far as a sign, a marker. That's what a sign is, right? It marks out, hey, what are we supposed to be looking for as this stuff is happening? Now, what do they ask about? The when question, when will these things be? So we have to ask the question, well, what are the these things that Jesus is talking about? And most people looking at that question go immediately, and rightfully so, to verse 2, because what Jesus has just said is, you see all these things, do you not? Referring to the buildings of the temple complex. Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so that's part of the, these things that the disciples are asking. They're asking, hey, when's the temple going to be destroyed? You just said it's going to be destroyed. When's it going to happen? But I would argue that their question goes further back. 
This is the advantage of what we did last week by lumping the end of chapter 37 together with chapters 24, verses 1 and 2. Because Jesus didn't just talk about the temple in verse 2 of chapter 24 or its destruction. He actually talked about its desolation, which is a key eschatological term, as we will see as we progress through Matthew 24. He talked about the temple's desolation back in chapter 23, verse 38. See, your house, referring to the temple, is left to you desolate. But notice what he does also in verse 39, like what we saw last week. For, your temple is desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me, the Christ, your Christ, your King, again, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Quoting Psalm 118, verse 26. And if you were to read Psalm 118, verse 26, as we did last week, you would see that that Jerusalem, Israel, is saying that from the temple. And so the these things that Jesus is talking, or the these things that the disciples are talking about, they're not just talking about the destruction of the temple. They're also thinking about his return because Jesus himself has tied his return or his absence, his presence or his absence with the desolation, the destruction of the temple. And so sometimes when we come to verse three, it's like, oh, he's asking two separate questions. He's asking about the destruction of the temple in one of these questions, the when question. And then he's asking about the coming of Jesus and the end of the age in the other question. And so effectively, we think about it as two separate topics. But the disciples aren't thinking about these as two separate topics. They are seeing them as intimately related. In other words, the two questions that they ask are about, yes, the destruction of the temple, but also about Jesus coming and the end of the age. All three of those bundled together. Essentially, it's one topic with two parts. One topic with two parts. A temporal question about when and a what question about sign. And that makes sense, right? Because what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, what it means for Jesus to be the Christ means that he is a temple builder, In 2 Samuel 7, when we talk about the Davidic covenant, which is the promise that one of David's heirs would sit on the throne forever, one of the stipulations of that covenant is that the Messiah will build God's house. And so we see the Messiah leaving the temple, and it's going to be desolated. But he also promises when Jerusalem says, from some sort of rebuilt temple, it seems, When they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, when they embrace their Messiah, the temple is back. But also when the Messiah comes, he's going to reign over the kingdom that was promised from the Old Testament, from Genesis, all the way to this point. And that that reign and that kingdom are also the turn of the ages. That's why the disciples ask, when are you coming as the king? And when's the end of the age? They bundle together the end of the age and Jesus coming because when the Messiah comes and establishes the kingdom, that's when we move from this evil present age to the age to come. And so you need to see in verse three, really they're asking about the same thing. When's the temple going to be destroyed? Yes. But when is Jesus coming? And when's the end of the age going to be done? Same topic, same complex of events with two separate questions. A when question and a what question. And really, if you think about it, the when and the what question are related, aren't they? If I tell you a date and a time for an event, well, that's a sign of when that event is going to be by its nature, right? 
Or if I tell you, well, um, you know, look for these events, look for these markers, you know, maybe not giving you the specific time and date, I'm giving you at least an indication of when that event will take place. So yes, these are two separate questions and they will dictate how Jesus answers the disciples, but they are intimately related. Now, what Jesus is going to do to give you a, for, for, a, uh, a picture of where we're going in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is going to answer these two questions by, their, by the disciples in reverse order. So what he's going to do from verse 4 all the way through verse 35 is he's going to talk about signs. He's going to talk about signs of his coming. And you will notice as you read through that, maybe you've already read through it or, um, in preparation for this morning, or maybe you read about it next week, um, but you will notice that there are no specific temporal markers. There's no when kind of stuff, but there's a lot of what, what sign kind of stuff. And then what Jesus will do is in verse 36 of chapter 24, he will then start to answer the second question or the first question, but he's going to answer it second, the when question. Verse 36 of chapter 24 says, now concerning the day and the hour, that's a when question. And he's really going to address that from chapter 24, verse 36, all the way to the end of chapter 25. So the disciples' two questions do structure the whole discourse, but he answers them in reverse order. But, and you think about the disciples' questions here, right? These are questions that we ask. Hey, when is it going to happen? What's the sign, right? We ask those same questions about Jesus' return because we want Jesus to come back. We anticipate the Lord's coming. But what Jesus is going to end up saying, especially in the second half of, from verse 36 on, he's going to say, uh, no one knows the day or the hour except the Father. Uh, so don't worry about that. Just be faithful and persevere now. And that is a lesson for us, even as we jump into this. Don't get sucked down the rabbit hole of eschatological calendars or date setting. Many people have done that. And Jesus doesn't want you to do that. Yes, Jesus wants you aware of the signs that he will set forth, but Jesus wants you to know what the scriptures say, seek to understand it, yes, but focus on how Jesus would have you live now. How you think the end is going to unfold dictates how you're going to live now. Don't get, sucked, don't get overly focused on the timing. Get focused on how you're living right now in light of the end. So that's the disciples' question. That's the disciples' question. When are all these things, your coming, the destruction of the temple, going to happen? And then what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? That are their two questions. And as we will see, he's going to answer the second one first, starting in verse 4. And we, start, we see this in verses 4 through 5. Jesus' first part of his answer to the disciples, don't be deceived by false Christs. Don't be deceived by false Christs. Christ. Look at verse 4. Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. Why? For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will, they will lead many astray. You see, Jesus is talking about his coming, right? Because he's talking about there's going to be false comings. There's going to be false messiahs that come. So he's already addressing that kind of second part of that question. And he's saying, hey, uh, there's going to be a lot of pretenders. There's going to be a lot of people pretending that they're the Messiah. 
Now, that could happen at two levels. I think sometimes when we read this as Christians, we think, oh, there's going to be a lot of people coming who are going to say, I'm Jesus. I've come back. But most immediately when Jesus said this, it would be more uh, along the lines of, I'm the Messiah. Come follow me. And there was a lot of people in the first century and even after the first century that in relation to the Jews were saying, I'm the Messiah. Remember what the, the idea of the Messiah is. I'm the ultimate king who's going to rule over Israel and over Jerusalem and over all the whole world. After Jesus said this in about AD 33, there were multiple in the next few decades, pretenders, those who came and said, I'm the Christ. I'm the promised Messiah. I'm going to rule over Israel. And they gathered people around them, Jewish people, and they led them astray. That even happened leading up to the Romans' destruction of the temple in AD 70, but it also happened after that. I don't know if you know this, but there was a first Jewish revolt happening in AD 66, culminating in the destruction of the temple in AD 70, finishing in, uh, with the destruction basically of all the forces of Israel in AD 73. But there was also a second Jewish revolt in A.D. 132. A.D. 132, a guy named Simon Bar Kokhba came along and he said, I'm the Messiah. Come follow me. And Israel did. And Rome had to come in again. And they were ticked this time because they had to do this all over again. They already did it and they were doing it again. And they level the nation and they build a temple to Jupiter on the site of the temple's location and they put a statue to the Emperor Hadrian in his spot. But all that came about because some guy claimed, I'm the Messiah, rounded up some Jews, they followed him. And Jesus is predicting that sort of thing and he's saying to his disciples, Don't be deceived, don't be led astray by messianic pretenders. Now we can think of through the centuries and leading up even to the current time, there's been lots of messianic pretenders. There's been lots of people saying, oh yeah, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm Jesus. I've come again. We hear about that kind of stuff every so often. And unfortunately, people get swayed by it. People think, oh yeah, this, this is the Messiah. This is Jesus. Come back. And they're, dis they're deceived and they are led astray. Now, sometimes that's really explicit, like in the case of Simon Bar Kokhba that I just mentioned. Sometimes we've you know, heard someone just say, I'm Jesus and I've come back. Sometimes it's really explicit. Those are the easy ones to say, uh, no, I'm not going to be led astray by that. That's false. But it can often be more subtle. And it can look like this. When a leader of a movement maybe has a Christian sort of veneer to it, maybe it seems to start off good, but then the leader of the movement effectively takes on a messianic status where the leader starts to say, well, if you want to follow God, you've got to follow me and you've got to listen to me because I have it right. Effectively, that becomes, that person becomes a false Christ, a false Messiah. Or it can even be something like uh, someone using Jesus' name or biblical concepts uh, to garner, uh, to gather support, like a politician. We hear politicians doing this all the time, right? Uh, I believe in Jesus. If you vote for me, I'm going to make America a better place. And you, you need to follow me. You need to get behind me because I'm really the one in line with Jesus. And they might gather people around them, evangelical leaders, to validate their claims. But friends, that is effectively a false Christ, a false Messiah. And you need to not be deceived 
by these false Christs, by these messianic pretenders. Now, here's the key to not being deceived by messianic pretenders. Know the real thing. There's only one true living Christ. He lives today, resurrected and ascended at the right hand of the Father on high, and you need to know him. I'm not saying know about him. Of course you need to know about him. I'm saying know him. Because that's what Christianity is all about. When we talk about the gospel and the good news, oftentimes we'll present, um, you're a sinner and you uh, are under God's wrath, which is true. God is holy. He cannot endure sin. Uh, And Jesus came to die for his people in place of their sins and to live a righteous life in their place such that if you repent and believe in Jesus, who had died and rose again and ascended on high, you will be saved from the Father's wrath. All of that is true and essential to the gospel. But what is the goal of the gospel? The goal of the gospel is God himself, Christ himself. Really, if you want to boil it down, Christ is the gospel. To know Christ, to love Christ, to delight in Christ. And through the Holy Spirit given to believers, we are able to have a fellowship with the Father and the Son even now. Not perfectly as it will be in the future, but in measure now. And so when we talk about, when I talk about coming to know the one true Christ, we're talking, yes, know your Bible, but know Christ. Know him intimately and in fellowship with him. And if you do so, you're going to know the legitimate, the bona fide, the genuine Christ and not be swayed by messianic pretenders. Maybe you're here this morning and uh, maybe you don't know Jesus like that. And you might say, well, I know a lot of facts about Jesus, but I I really don't have a relationship with him. I don't have any intimacy or closeness with him on a day-to-day basis. Friend, then you need to hear the good news of the gospel that Jesus came to rescue you so that you could enjoy him. And not be swayed by cheap imitations and false Christs, but to enjoy the one true and living Christ. How does that happen? It happens through repentance, laying down arms, turning your allegiance from sin and self and faith and trusting yourself to the living Christ who is resurrected and ascended at the right hand of the father right now. You need to have dealings with that living Christ to know him, to have fellowship, to have joy in him. So the first thing that Jesus says in answer to the disciples question is saying, well, one of the things you're going to see is a bunch of false Christs. That's one of the things, and it happens multiple times before the end, but that's one of the things you're going to see before the end. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by false Christ. But then next he says this in verses 6 through 8. Don't be disturbed by wars, famines, and earthquakes. Don't be disturbed by wars, famines, and earthquakes. Look at verse 6. And you will hear of wars... And reports of wars. See that you're not alarmed. The idea of that word alarm there is disturbed, that you're not perturbed, that you're not shaken. See that you're not disturbed. For this must take place. It's necessary for wars and uh, reports of wars to take place. But the end, referring back to the end of the age that the disciples asked about, the end is not yet. Yes, the end is coming, and yes, there's going to be some wars and some reports of wars that you hear about. Don't be freaked out about it. Don't be disturbed or shaken. 
because the end is not yet. Yeah, the wars need to happen. It's necessary before the end. And he elaborates even more in verse 7. Nation will, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And so he even adds on. He says, all right, there's going to be this upheaval among the nations. There's going to be lots of wars and reports of wars. But there's also going to be disasters like famines. Famines can be caused by war or they can be natural. But there's going to be famines and there's going to be earthquakes. And Jesus is saying, don't be disturbed. Don't be shaken as if I've missed it or something like that. Don't be disturbed. The end is not yet. What does he say in verse 8? All of these, all the wars, the rumors of wars, the famines, the earthquakes, they're just the beginning of birth pains. Now, we understand that analogy, right? A birth pain uh, happens when a baby's starting to come. But the first birth pain you feel, it's going to be painful. It's a pain, right? But that doesn't mean the baby's here yet. There's going to be a lot more, and the planes are going to get closer and closer together until the delivery. And in this case, the delivery is Jesus coming back and the end of the age. And he's just saying, all right, you're going to have uh, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes. Those are just contractions. And they were experienced even in the first century. As you, the, 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 the decades of the first century went on, there were famines. Famines were even referenced in the New Testament. There's also upheaval that happens. Even as it gets closer and closer to AD 70, there is this, um, there's, there's the, uh, uh, the rebellion by the Jews, but there's also civil war within the, Greek, uh, the uh, Roman Empire uh, and other wars as well. But then they have continued since then as well. And Jesus is saying the end's not yet. It's not done yet. And we can think of from then till now, all the wars, famines, earthquakes that have happened, those are just all contractions of a fallen world looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus. Now, if you think about what Jesus is saying here, it's kind of funny because he says, uh, don't be disturbed. There's going to be a lot of wars. There's going to be a lot of famines and there's going to be a lot of earthquakes. You're like, uh, those are kind of distressing things. Right? Like uh, upheaval, like we see all over the world and have seen. Destruction, like we see in Ukraine right now or other places in the globe. Right? There's, there's those sorts of things that happen. Or famines, people can't eat and people die. Those are distressing things. Or earthquakes, like the one that happened in Turkey that we heard about for a great deal of time. Or others. What you need to see in looking at those things is, yeah, those are birth pains. Those are things that uh, are going to lead up to the end. They're signs of the end in that sense, but not in such a way that you can pinpoint and say, ha-ha, right there. He's coming back tomorrow. No. What Jesus wants you to do with that information is to say, don't be distressed. Don't be shaken. Don't be shaken. Don't be disturbed by those things. They're a normal part of a groaning world which will lead up to the end. But don't try to fit those things in a particular timeline or date setting. And here's the thing. Things are going to get a whole lot worse. Things are going to get a whole lot worse. That's essentially what Jesus says. Things are going to get a whole lot worse, so don't freak out about it. Which, in a sense, it is comforting, right? To know all this upheaval we see, all these devastations we see. Yeah, they need to happen. It's necessary for them to happen. But the key is persevere in faith and obedience until Jesus returns. That's your job. 
to persevere in faith and obedience until the end. Here's the comfort through this. It's going to get a whole lot worse for Christians. You're going to have to go through wars. You're going to have to go through upheavals. You're going to have to go through famines. You're going to have to go through earthquakes. You're going to have to go through all of those things. What's going to comfort you when you're hungry? What's going to comfort you when your nation is war-torn and devastated? What's going to happen when there are earthquakes and buildings falling all over the place? What is going to have you get through that? It's this, that you belong to Jesus through repentance and faith. Heidelberg Catechism, question one, and I wish I could cite it. I'm not, I'm not good at um, memorizing it. I tried to, I've tried to memorize it a couple times, but effectively, Heidelberg Catechism, question one, asks this question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And it says this, that I belong to my faithful, my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You should go look that up. You can find it on the internet really easily. Do it after the sermon. Don't do it during the sermon, right? <laughs> but the point is, What's going to carry you through the difficulties that you must go through to reach the end? The knowledge that through repentance and faith, you belong to Jesus Christ. That even though you go through very difficult hardships, he's got you. And he loves you. And even though he's going to have you go through very difficult things, he's going to keep you by his grace through your perseverance to the end. Which leads us to our next point. In verses 9 through 14, what Jesus says next, persevere and preach the gospel to reach the end. Persevere and preach the gospel to reach the end. This is verses 9 through 14. Look at verse 9. Then, so the idea is, it seems like uh, Jesus is saying, after, you know, the general, this is general distress that we're talking about in the world. And then he starts saying this in verse 9. Then... They will deliver you up to tribulation. Now, the word there for tribulation, it just means, um, it can mean a whole number of different things. Affliction, uh, persecution, oppression. And it's more along the, eyes, along the lines of persecution here, because look what he says. Then, they will deliver you up to oppression, persecution, and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. I love Jesus because he's just so honest, right? He's like, by the way... Uh, as you are disciples, and notice the vision here is of the future because it's like the gospel spread to the nations, right? And he's saying, um, yeah, the, the nations, those who are not Christians, those who are external to the church and the community of disciples, uh, they're going to hate you. They're going to all hate you, and they're going to kill you, and they're going to persecute you. So Jesus is saying, yeah, uh, after all this general distress, there's going to be persecution. There's going to be external pressure. There's going to be external difficulty. You need to know that. But then he adds on to it. Verse 10. And then, so after this external difficulty and pressure and persecution from external to the church, external to the, to the disciples, verse 10, and then many will fall away. Uh, literally, the idea is many will be caused to stumble. But this isn't just like stumbling and like, oh, I stumbled and I got back up. This is like stum stumbling irrevocably. This is what we call apostasy. And now notice what Jesus has done. He switched from external pressure to internal defection. 
internal defection. And then he just develops that. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. What Jesus is saying is, yeah, the visible community of disciples, those who are professing visibly faith in Christ, the visible church, there's going to be a lot of apostasy. There's going to be a lot of falling away. And then what's going to happen is there's going to be betrayal, which makes sense. If there's all this external pressure, if there's external pressure and persecution, what's that going to do? It's going to expose the false professors. It's going to expose those who truly never knew Jesus, false disciples. And those false disciples are going to not only defect, but what they're going to do is they're going to expose those around them. It's like, well, I have no, I have no skin in this game anymore. I might as well betray those fellow disciples around me. And they're going to hate them too. It's like, I'm, I'm out of this, this, this uh, church stuff. I'm out of this God stuff. I'm out of this Jesus stuff. I might as well live and save my own skin. So you see, Jesus is talking about an external pressure that's going to force out from the internally false professors in the visible church. And not only that, look at verse 11. He continues with the internal idea. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So a false prophet, what's a false prophet? It's a false messenger. Someone who's purporting to speak for God, but is actually false. Actually, if you were to go back to the Old Testament and say Jeremiah's time... This happened right before uh, the Israel was taken into Babylonian captivity. There were these false prophets that were saying, peace, peace, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. God's happy with you. And they misled much of the nation. But you got guys like Jeremiah, true prophets, warning and saying, no, judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. Repent, repent. Judgment's coming. And Jesus is saying it's going to happen in the church too. There's going to be false prophets. We already see prophets in our day, those who proclaim to be prophets, New Testament prophets to get a word of faith or that sort of a thing. They're just false because their predictions don't come true. And you shouldn't listen to them. But notice they deceive many people all over the globe. Saw it in Africa. We see it here in the United States. It's all over. False prophets arising from within the church. And they're misleading others so that these others that they're misleading, they're also effectively defecting, right? They're, they're sweeping other professing disciples away. And then Jesus ends this kind of internal discussion in verse 12. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Now, Jesus has been talking about the many. You might notice that from verses 10 through 12, he talks about the many. The many are uh, the people who are defecting, the majority. The many are these people who are defecting. So when he says the love of many, he's talking about defectors. He's saying, uh, yeah, there's going to be lawlessness. What is lawlessness? Lawlessness is not just doing naughty things. Lawlessness is not submitting to law, meaning you live however you want. They're not submitting to the law of God. They're not submitting to the law of Christ. It's interesting here, if you look at it, Jesus closely ties law and love. Because the idea of law is not antithetical to love. Law gives you, uh, your love tracks to run on. Think about it like this. Law is how you love God and others. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, when, uh, when God says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he goes right into, and these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. 
And Jesus has already talked about this idea in Matthew 22 about loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. On these, all the law and the prophets hang together. If you live outside of God's law, then you can't love because the law is the tracks on which love runs on. And so what's going to happen, it seems like, what Jesus is picturing is lawlessness in society is going to increase. We're not submitting to the law of God. We're not submitting to Christ's law. And then it's going to tempt these false disciples and say, ooh, that looks really good. And then they're going to cast off love for God and love for neighbor, and their love for God and love for neighbor is going to go out. And they're going to defect. Do you see the picture Jesus is painting here? External pressure from all the nations from the outside, it's going to squeeze out. It's going to squeeze out all the false professors from the church. But notice how he counterbalances this. He says, he's saying this to his disciples, and by extension to us, he's speaking, I think, believe in a generic way to his 12 and then to us, their spiritual descendants. Notice how he counterbalances it. Verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. What does Jesus mean here? We encountered this statement before in, uh, in Matthew 10, 22. It's the exact same thing. Um, he means what he says. When we talk about salvation in a biblical sense, salvation has yet to come. None of us in this room are saved yet. What do I mean by that? Normally, when we talk about salvation in Christian circles, we confuse it with justification. Now, justification is the basis of salvation. Don't get me wrong. But in the biblical sense, salvation doesn't take place until you're in safely in the kingdom, which is yet to come. That's the salvation that Jesus has purchased us to. To, to be in the kingdom, in a renewed heavens, in a renewed earth, enjoying the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit forever in perfect harmony, in renewed bodies on a renewed earth. That's salvation. Now, the question is, well, how do I get that? How do I know I'm going to enter that kingdom? Well, first, first step, repentance and faith in Jesus, who has died in place of his people for their sins and lived the righteous life for his people in terms of their sins, such that the judge, namely Jesus, can hand you his verdict of the final day ahead of time. And he says, yeah, because you are joined to me through repentance and faith, you will be justified on that future day of judgment before you enter the kingdom. And so that's essential for our assurance and salvation. Jesus, if we have replaced repentance, if we have repented and placed our faith in Jesus, we can be absolutely assured that I stand justified in the eyes of God. He's delivered the future judgment today so that I can walk in a persevering way in faith in Jesus through this whole life until either I die or come back. But if you're not going to persevere, you're not going to make it. If you don't persevere, you're not going to be saved. Saved in the sense that you're going to enter the kingdom. Think about it like this. We've been saying it in Matthew all along that those who are truly joined to Jesus, it's not only that he counts you righteous, he changes your whole life such that it looks like Matthew 5 through 7, such that it means you will persevere. God has chosen his people before the foundation of the world who are his, and then he's given that people to the son, and the son has redeemed those people. All of that is from God's perspective. We do not have God's perspective. 
God is going to preserve his people whom he's elected before the foundation of the world through the work of the Son and the regenerating work of the Spirit. We don't have that perspective. God sees it, we don't. So how God, from his perspective, is preserving people to the end, to either their death or Jesus' return. How do we experience that from our perspective? Perseverance. Perseverance. We experience God's, if we are in Christ, we experience God's preservation of us in faith through the active work of perseverance. In other words, Christianity is not a one and done thing. It's not that I prayed a prayer, I had this experience, and that was good, and so I had this moment, and I'm good to go. That's not how the Bible talks about change. Yes, there is that moment of change, but then it results in a whole life of faith, a whole life of perseverance, a whole life of laboring, working out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work within us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so Jesus means what he says. The one who perseveres to the end, either to your death or to Christ's coming, only that person will be saved. And the, the, from God's perspective, the people he's chosen, all of those people and, uh, will persevere. How do we experience that? We experience it through perseverance. So really what he's calling his disciples to, that you're going to see, you're going to be persecuted from the outside. There's going to be external oppression, unimaginable. And then you're going to see your friends fade away. You're going to see defection. How are you going to make it? Perseverance. Perseverance by seeing Jesus and by valuing Jesus above all. But there's hope here. There's hope here and another marker. Look at how Jesus ends in verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom. Now, what is Jesus talking about? The gospel of the kingdom is what John the Baptist has been proclaiming, what Jesus has been proclaiming, and what Jesus' disciples have been proclaiming, namely this. Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. And that message from John, from Jesus and his disciples, is the idea that God's judgment is coming. Before the kingdom starts, he's going to judge the world. And that judgment is going to be fiery and unimaginably horrible. And so what is the proper response? If you want to escape from Jesus' wrath on the day of judgment, you bow the knee. You forgo self-love, self-worship, sin. You lay down arms. You surrender and say, I am not the king. Jesus is the king. And not only is Jesus the king, but he's my savior. He's the one who came as the God-man to serve me, to serve his, not just me, but his people to rescue them, and only through his death on the cross as a substitute for sin, and only his righteousness counted to me will save me. That is the gospel of the kingdom, and it, the, the king commands repentance. He's not asking for it. He's commanding you to repent and have faith. And Jesus is saying that gospel, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, the whole inhabited earth, as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It's like the only prerequisite that Jesus gives in this whole section. He basically says, yeah, there's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be famines. There's going to be earthquakes. You're going to be persecuted. There's going to be a lot of defection. But the marker, at least the prerequisite that we see before the end, is the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom to all the nations. And it's going to happen. 
But just because it's going to happen doesn't mean we don't have a part to play. It's a call also to his disciples to further the mission, to reach the nations, to reach the inhabited world, to bring a testimony to all the nations of the world. This is why we believe in missions and why we believe in frontier missions. Places where Jesus, the name of Jesus Christ has never been heard over 2,000 years and still people have never heard of the name of Jesus. That is our mission. And so really what Jesus is doing, he's on the one side, he's saying there's external oppression, there's going to be internal defection, but counterbalancing that, what are you supposed to do? Persevere and preach the gospel. That's what he's calling you to do. Because if we know the end and we know where history is going, what are we called to now? Perseverance, endurance, and preaching the gospel, fulfilling our mission that Jesus has given us. Now, notice what Jesus has effectively done from verse 4 to verse 14. He just gave us a broad outline from the Olivet Discourse in AD 33 to the end, which hasn't happened yet. Now, it's a kind of sketchy outline, isn't it? He just says, yeah, you're going to see wars, you're going to see uh, famines, you're going to see earthquakes, there's going to be persecution, there's going to be a lot of defection. Uh, you guys need to persevere and preach the gospel, and then the end will come. It's a pretty broad outline. Now, what Jesus is going to do in the next two weeks is he's going to say, all right, that's my outline. Now, let me focus in on a couple pieces of that outline in the next couple sections, but we'll have to wait. You'll have to come back if you want to hear those next couple sections, right? But already we see there is much here for us to apply. This is not just trying to line up our eschatological calendars. First, we've already said it, but you must persevere. I can't say it again enough. You must persevere to the end in, uh, to the end in faith to be saved. Full final salvation happens at the declaration of righteousness of the judgment and entrance into the kingdom. Only those truly in union with Christ through repentance of faith will make it. God knows who are his people and he will protect them so that they persevere. But that's God's perspective from our perspective. That divine protection is experienced in our perseverance. You need to be ready to persevere through great persecution from the outside and internal defection from inside the visible church. You need to know that. You need to know that you're going to be persecuted, that people are going to want to kill you. You need to know that your friends, maybe some of the friends in this room right here, will go away. They'll depart because they were never truly disciples in the first place. You need to know that so that you persevere. You need to know that there's going to be false teachers. There are false teachers out there right now. There will be, and you need to not be swayed by them. You need to listen to true teaching in accordance with the word of God so that you're not swayed. Friends, if you have an eschatological system where you think you don't have to worry about that, ah, that's not for me. That's for Israel. Don't worry about that. I'm afraid for you. Because what's going to happen when it comes? It's like, wait a minute. Well, I didn't think I had to go through this. Because Jesus tells his disciples, the core of the church, you're going to have to go through this. And you need to expect that. You can't kick up your heels and say, whew, glad I'm going to be rescued from that pain and that suffering. Baloney. Pain and suffering are coming to Jesus' people, and those who endure to the end will be saved. 
How are you going to endure? Don't let your love grow cold. I love that phrase. Don't let your love grow cold. How do you let your lo- not let your love grow cold? You see the lawlessness in the world. Man, it's like, man, it looks really easy and nice to live un- not under the law of anyone except yourself. How are you not going to let your love grow cold? By seeking to rekindle your affections for God and his people daily by remembering the gospel, by remembering who Jesus is and what he saved you from and what he saved you to, that kindles your affections, that kindles your love so it doesn't go out. You need to be doing that daily. You need to be with his people daily. That's why the church exists. One of the reasons the church exists is that we gather together to be refreshed and encouraged and rekindled so our love doesn't go cold. And then we also learn this, as we've said, proclaim, proclaim, proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Question, are you, if you are in Christ, you're professing Christ, are you able to proclaim a true gospel? We have a little trifold out there on the table that just outlines a very basic gospel. Are you able to proclaim the true gospel? If not, you may not know the true gospel. You may not be saved. Are you able to proclaim a true gospel? And notice what Jesus calls it here. It's the gospel of the kingdom. Talk about the kingdom, the future kingdom that's coming in your gospel presentation. Don't present to people just this idea that, well, you're going to be saved and you're going to go to heaven and you're going to float around on a cloud forever. That's not the vision of the kingdom. That's not the vision of heaven. And it's really kind of boring sounding, honestly. Talk about the kingdom the way Jesus talks about it, the way the scriptures talk about it in your gospel presentation. Be faithful to proclaim to those around you, those at work, those whom you're golfing with, those that uh, are your actual neighbors, those you bump into at the gas station. Be ready to proclaim at any moment the true gospel. Now, I say that, but the other question you need to ask is, is your life displaying the gospel? If your life is not displaying the gospel, like you have a really bad reputation or you, you, um, you do things that people just are angry at you, they hate you, they see, man, well, his life is a mess. Please don't proclaim the gospel because you're just going to make it stink. You need not only the right words, you need the right life. Now, none of us is perfect. We understand that. But are we living faithfully in such a way that our words are reinforcing our actions and our actions are reinforcing our words. Your reputation matters. Now, along with that idea of proclaiming the gospel, some of you in this room need to think about going into missions. Some of you in this room need to think about becoming pastors and teachers and going overseas and sacrificing a great deal because why? We want the gospel proclaimed to all the nations of all the inhabited world so that Jesus comes back. I want Jesus to come back. I want to enter the kingdom. And yeah, there's a lot of hardship to go through to get there. I want, it's, the kingdom's going to make it worth it. So some of you in this room need to sacrifice what you think is a good career, and you need to go and serve on the mission field. Don't just go out on your own. You need to be confirmed by the church. But some of you need to think and pray about that. Because we're all in this mission together. There's not a Christian that's not part of the mission to proclaim the gospel to the nations. We are all involved in that mission at one level or another. Some of us just have different roles in that task. 
And I hope the gospel has been clear to this morning so that if you're coming in, it's like, what is this gospel stuff? What are you talking about? It's just this, that God has created man to enjoy him forever. Man has fallen. He is a sinner, deserves God's wrath. He, but, Christ, but God has sent his eternal son to become man, to die in place of his people, to live a perfect righteous life so that that can be counted to you, so that you can be justified on the day of judgment before God's eyes and so that you can enter that kingdom. How do you get in on that? Through repentance and faith um, in Jesus Christ, the one mediator who has ascended, who is at the right hand of God, who is the one mediator between God and man. So don't be deceived. Don't be disturbed. Persevere and preach the gospel of the kingdom to reach the end. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, make us a persevering people. Lord, we are fickle. We are swayed. We are tempted by the lawlessness. Lord, to, tempted to step out from under your authority, the authority of the Father, the authority of the Son, to step out from under your law. Lord, we are tempted to take it easy. We're tempted to not persevere. Oh, Lord, that's a battle each and every day. Lord, I pray for your people in this room. Sustain them. Give them faith each and every day. Give them grace to work hard to kill sin, that they might not be choked out, that their love might not grow cold. Give them grace to love one another, to care for one another, to serve one another, Lord, give them grace to persevere no matter the the torture, no matter the persecution, no matter the difficulty, no matter people defecting around them. Lord, may they see the loveliness of you, Lord Jesus. And may that love drive us to the end. Pray that for all of us, O Lord. Give us grace to persevere. Guard us from deception, false teachers, false doctrine, false movements. Guard us from being freaked out by earthquakes and wars, etc. Help us to hang on for dear life. Hang on to you for dear life, abiding until the end. Lord, if there are any in this room who do not know you, please bring them to repentance that they might not experience your wrath on the day of judgment and for eternity. Lord, we ask these things and we pray them in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.